find somebody who's 70% of you, train the final 10%, which I mean, train them in your culture and the way you think things should be done the best and be okay with 80%, kick them out of the nest and let them go. Welcome closers. Today we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season three on profit. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100 units or 1,000, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Reach Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I am honored to be speaking with Scott Fritz, the founder of Growth Connect, a business coaching and exit planning service that specializes in transforming businesses into assets. He's also the author of The 40-Hour Workyear, chronicling his entrepreneurial journey that led him to become a passive investor in his own business. In this interview, Scott shares where most property management entrepreneurs go wrong when it comes to managing their business for the outcome that we all want, which is profit and freedom. Welcome to the show, Scott. Hey, thanks a lot, Jordan. Great to be here. I appreciate you coming on. And I just want to kind of get a little bit of context on your industry background as an entrepreneur. What is the the industry and the business that you cut your teeth on in becoming an entrepreneur? Yeah, great question. I uh, started a professional employer organization back in 1997. Basically, it's an outsourced HR payroll benefits company. And took that from zero, grew it to uh, 170 million. We were in 42 states when we sold, and I sold it in 2007. That was a, roughly a 10-year run. Am I hearing that? Yep. Right? Yep. 10 years and three months. 10 years, three months. You exit out of the business. Did you know what you wanted to do when you when you exited? What was the gap between exiting and doing what you're doing now in terms of coaching, author, etc.? Yeah, I was uh, helping a couple other fellow entrepreneurs exit their businesses already when I sold. Mm-hmm. So I kind of was in that, that vein of, of coaching and consulting, uh, if you would. And I was doing these talks that I used to call it transition position acquisition was the talk I do to entrepreneurial groups. And people kept asking me, well, when's the book coming out? When's the book coming out? I was like, oh, I don't want to write a book. That's, that's like painful. But eventually I said, you know, it's a bucket list. Everybody's got a book in them. So I wrote the book, 40-Hour Worker. It came out in 2010, so it got about a gap. There was about a two-year area there. And then the book came out. I went from three exit clients to 15 coaching clients in like eight months. And boom, there I was. I was coaching people. All right. So the 40-hour work year, if I'm doing my math right, that's technically eight hours less than Tim Ferriss promises via the four-hour work week. You've got him beat a bit there. (laughs) Yeah, I think it actually works out to exactly a week. (laughs) It's a week week shorter. Yeah, I love it. So let's kind of go through some of the concepts in the book. I've been through the book. It is inspiring and it really kind of gets at the nut of what we all want as entrepreneurs that are freedom-minded. We're looking to have more time for our other pursuits. Most entrepreneurs, even if you love the hustle, even if you love the grind, you want more freedom, more margin, whether that be to invest in making the next business or to invest in time with family. We're all in pursuit of freedom. That's really 
what I view this book as, as being about in large part. You start off the book talking about mindset. I find that to be such a common theme amongst high-level entrepreneurs. There are lower-level entrepreneurs that are kind of struggling and the, the concept of mindset comes up and it feels a little squishy, maybe a little bit like hype or fluff, but you start your book there. And specifically, you talk about your, your focus filter. In the book, you talked about how you got to the point where you were prioritizing these three statements, enjoy life, make money, and do deals. Talk to me about how your mindset has changed over time in running this business, being on this journey. That's where I ended up. So enjoy life, make money, do deals is how I've been living my life from a business filter standpoint since 2004. So going on 14 years. Uh, Unfortunately for me, though, like a lot of entrepreneurs, which you just mentioned, I started out with do deals, make money, enjoy life. So totally backwards. Uh, I'm a deal junkie. We were talking earlier. I did a lot of angel investing. That's how I feed my addiction to deals. But unfortunately, in the beginning, I wasn't making a lot of money and I sure was not enjoying life. Um, So that was the kickoff. That was about two to three years of the first 10 years of the business. I then moved to make money, do deals, enjoy life. So enjoy life was still third. But now I was only doing deals that made me and the company, the margin we set out to grow the business. And then finally, the final four years, I was enjoy life, make money, do deals. But natural progress over time, that makes sense. Was this something that you were a conclusion that you would say you were circumstantially forced into? Or did you have a coach at the time? Were you a part of any entrepreneurial organizations? How did that awareness develop for you? I was part of YEO, Young Entrepreneurs Organization at the time. It's now called EO. They dropped the Y in uh, 2007 when people like me started getting gray and bald. <laughs> what really came about on this was, and I, and I do talk about this in the book, is I hadn't solidified it into those three words until about probably five years into the business. And I realized that the more I did things I enjoyed, I mean, this is like common sense if you think about it, the more money I made and the more time I had to do deals. So it only made sense to flip the thing and and go backwards on it instead of just doing deals for deal's sake, hoping you make money, thinking that eventually you might enjoy life. I mean, the deals, particularly for the subset of entrepreneurs, which is pretty wide, that can get attracted to the shiny squirrel thing. Deals are yep. so sexy. They can suck up so much time. And the truth is, you don't make any money on the deal until A, it was the right deal, and you take it all the way home. And at the point that you're down that path, you've, you've just created more inertia that you have to sustain and support. One of the things that you talk about in the book is the ownership paradox, which I thought was was fascinating. It, it's something you can easily intuit when you describe it, but at the same time, for a lot of us, we're not optimizing for it. Can you just describe what that is briefly? Sure. Uh, and I saw that, that diagram at a conference I was at back in 2000. And it really, at the time, it really rocked my world and, and helped me change my mindset about my business. Basic concept is that, and most owners don't believe this, that's why I call it a paradox, the more the owner is in the business, in the business, the less valuable it is, not only from a purchaser standpoint, but just from an actual running profitability, um, systematized, um, what I call profit machine or ATM type standpoint. So the owner, a real owner, an entrepreneur should be working on the business, which is Michael Gerber, E-Myth. I mean, that's where I learned that. Right. I learned that before I even started my business. But, you know, as owners of businesses, we get stuck in a lot of the in the business stuff. And it's tied to ego. It's tied to trust issues. It's tied to incompetency, both with our people and ourselves. And once we finally get, you know, our head around it and say, wait a minute, this thing, if I set it up correctly and I get out of working in the business, the people I've hired are going to be free to go do the things they should do and, and do them to the best of their ability. Let's dig in. It's not 
a complicated thought, what you just described. And yet there is so much resistance. You identify in the book at one point, you describe yourself as a, a control freak, right? Which most yeah. small business owners are. I mean, absolutely. How do you get over the hump? I really caution people because I, I don't want them to get to the point I did. I talk about in, in the book what I call the mirror moment, which is where I basically, my body was physically breaking down. I had a nervous breakdown, panic attack, whatever you want to call it, passed out in my car. Fortunately, I was parked when it happened. And that moment, I realized that doing the same thing, again, definition of insanity, doing more of the same thing every day was not going to make my business better. It was not going to make me a better entrepreneur. And it sure the heck wasn't going to get me enjoying life. So for me, it was that brick wall of my body saying, knock it off. I've been going 90 plus hours a week, nonstop. You know, you're not eating right. You're not taking care of yourself. I'm going to shut you down if you don't make a change. And so that was the pivotal moment where I started to say, all right, enough's enough. As I talk about in the book, I went out and hired a salesperson two weeks later, hired another one about a month later, never looked back, never had that happen again. So one of the things that you talk about in the book is coming to terms with the idea that other people are not going to do the job as well as you, because there's really a pull in the natural emotional tension. And your way of resolving that was to basically say, it's true and it's okay. Walk me through getting to that conclusion on getting out of the business and putting people in a pretty high level of management. I mean, you weren't just saying that somebody else is going to be uh, less good than you and it's okay on lower level positions. You were doing that all the way up the food chain. Yeah, correct. I and, and quite honestly, this is probably the number one thing I get emailed back about or I get phone call when I do one of my talks or presentations is what I call the 80% rule. And the concept is you as an entrepreneur have to be okay with 80%. And that is the biggest issue. If you in your mind cannot say, I'm okay with somebody being 80% of me I'm not sure you can ever totally, well, I know you can't live the 40 hour work here, but I don't even know that you can transition to the 40 hour work a month because you're going to always be in there meddling. You're going to be second guessing. And really it's a lot of trust. It's really the T word is what we're talking about here. In the book, I say, find somebody who's 70% of you, train the final 10%, which I mean, train them in your culture and the way you think things should be done the best and be okay with 80%, kick them out of the nest and let them go. Now you still coach them. You're still there for them. But you're not doing it. You're coaching them to do it, which right. is how you transition yourself out of your business. Mm -hmm. So in your situation, when you actually went about that as an idea or a concept, it sounds great. But talk to me about some of the, the hiccups and the mistakes and, and the boo-boos that you experienced in walking through that. It becomes more difficult as you spread out across the organization. So the first person I went to replace myself was my main role in the business, in the business, which was I was the sales manager, sales director. So I was overseeing the sales team. So I went out and I took the number two guy at paychecks, not the number two guy nationally, but the number two guy in the Midwest. And he became my sales manager. His name was Jeff. I would say he was 72 to 75% of me. I trained the final 10% and let him go. And uh, uh, which was interesting, four years after we sold the company, he was still the sales manager for the company. So it validates for me that obviously I had the right person in there. When you move up to the next level, which would be an executive, now, well, he was an executive, but when you move up to say the CEO level, which I was a CEO, I wanted to replace myself as a CEO. Fortunately for us, uh, we had an individual in the company, his name was Seth, and he'd already been in the company. And so when we handed over the reins of CEO and president, uh, he'd already been at the company six years. Now, 
we still in that mindset had to say, okay, Seth's going to make some decisions that are probably and do some things that are probably not exactly as I do them, mm-hmm. but he's a strong, and Seth was a strong 85 to 90% of me. We were very aligned. I mean, we did have our differences, but you know, that's, that's a case where that person, if you don't have them internally, that's probably the biggest stumbling block I face uh, with entrepreneurial companies is finding that replacement of you as the CEO or president of your organization. Did you pursue the option or the possibility of hiring a professional CEO from outside the company? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, we did this in all our high level positions, basically director and up. It was an open interview. So we, we post the job just like a normal company would. It's open to anybody in the company to apply for internally. And then we also had our external search. Now, again, we were an HR company, so we have a lot of these things set up probably better than a lot of, you know, just a regular tech company or something would. But it was an open interview. So Seth went against three other uh, candidates uh, for CEO and president got down to him and and one other and uh, in the end we I think we made the right decision we, we picked Seth so he stayed on presumably it was a yep. he again another example he had a two year employment contract which is part of the deal of the sale and he stayed on another two years so he was there four years as well what we're talking about here is what you call the transition first is the awareness that the business is actually suffering as a result of me having my hands and everything. Then is the actual plan to make that transition. And it's something that happened in stages over time. What you're not advocating is just overnight saying, hey team, I'm checking out. We're going to make this the quickest path there. There was a lot of structure in place. You identify eight specific areas within the business. And I'd like to talk through those because this really puts some more meat on the bones. I kind of view these areas as really just some undergirding of the business that should happen regardless of whether or not you choose to hire a CEO. Fair to say? Absolutely. You make a great point, Jordan. Everything in the book, and when I do a presentation, I make this very clear. I am not telling people to go sell your business. I am not even telling people to go live 40-hour work years. What I'm saying is, if you follow the systems and filters and processes that I use, I believe you will necessarily, number one, enjoy life more, number two, make more money, and number three, in my case, do deals. Whatever that true passion is, you'll have more time to go after that. That's Got the whole it. point. Yep. So you're appealing to the burnout and the stress that we can all relate to, to open up a pretty necessary conversation, regardless of whether or not you want to exit the business. Totally. Correct. Correct. Exit's just one outcome. You could have an evergreen business. You could uh, go buy other companies. You can hand it over to your, to your kids, a legacy business. That's not the, the end is not the ultimate goal in the beginning. I always say begin with the end of mind, but the goal is to get yourself moved out of the in the business stuff. In order to make that transition, you had to start playing a bigger game, a bigger game, meaning that taking a pay cut to be able to afford to bring somebody else on, the revenues needing to go up to support that long term, and then Correct. the infrastructure. And the first one of those infrastructure items being the SOP, the standard operating procedure. And this is one of those things that, again, it's like it's so obvious and folks even do it, and then it becomes a dusty document or a document stored somewhere inside of a spreadsheet or an Excel file. How do you go from the concept to actually running off of an SOP and getting value from it? So I I say in the book, this is the most onerous thing that I have ever done as an entrepreneur. And I I still to this day say, this was like just, oh, I mean, painful, especially as an entrepreneur. Because, you know, I always say, if you want to really put entrepreneurs to sleep, talk about systems and talk about training. And they'll (laughs) They'll all go immediately to their device and pretend you're not even there because it's so boring. But the whole point is, if you get your SOPs or once you get your SOPs in place, your systems, standard operating procedures, 
you can have more time, you will have more time to go do the creative fun building stuff. So it's a necessary, not evil, but it's a necessary thing you must do in your business so that your people can be trained and aligned with where you want to take them. So the first step, and I talk about in the book, and now there's some great tools out there now. I always recommend a couple of them out there. But what we did back then is like, you know, Henry Ford time motion studies. 15-minute intervals, people took log books into their workplace, 15 minutes every hour, they would log what they did, we'd gather that over a two-week period, sit down with the executive team, pull the best practices out, usually five to 10, write those, document those, go back in, plug them in, do it again. So, you know, this took us about nine, a little less than nine months to totally get the business systematized from beginning to end. Wow. Nine months of documentation. Describe the end state for me. Well, the end state was we could bring in somebody, let's just use a payroll coordinator, for example, who typically once onboarded was taking around five weeks to get fully up to speed where we could hand over a new client list to them. You know, they were shadowing people to get up to speed. Once the SOPs were in place, about 10 days, 10 business days, that person went from day one to handling a regular sized account, not even a small account, uh, with really no hiccups or, or little errors compared to what was happening before even in five weeks. Onboarding, ramp time, what are some yep. of the other benefits on number of errors? Yeah, so we had this thing called zero defect payrolls. I mean, our, our payroll error rate went from, I don't know, probably like 12%, which sounds kind of high, but not in reality when you're running thousands and thousands of checks down to under 2%. Um, that was kind of the norm, which again, you gotta realize the time here. We were still in the fax machine call-in days. This was not, online payroll just started taking off when we sold the company. <laughs> so, you know, it, this was not, a lot of the things that the, the customer or client could, could alleviate from an error standpoint were still out there when we had the business. The scale, I mean, scale and technology. I mean, when you have the systems in place, you can now go plug technology in to take over a lot of those operations. Before you do that, as, as Gerber talks about in his book, you're hiring people to run a business, you're not hiring people to run a system. So until the system's in place, you're pretty much winging it in a lot of cases, which is no way to grow a business. Mm -hmm. It is self-fulfilling, right? In the absence of a system, it is challenging to hire. The losing an employee is incredibly painful. Well, I, and to your point, what are some of the other benefits? I found this out real early on, and fortunately, I paid attention. The top A players, the real quality people, guess what kind of company they want to work for? Mm -hmm. A company that has systems and training. I mean, we've all been there. I know I was many times. I went and worked for these companies before I started my own. You know, systems were average and training was nothing or almost non-existent. And it's very frustrating as an employee to go in and not be comfortable and know what the heck you're supposed to do every day. Well, so by contrast, though, it's also uncomfortable to assume that you're being hired into a machine where your judgment is not needed or valued. Talk to me about step two, the decision matrix. Yeah. So decision matrix is a great point. The decision matrix. So behind the decision matrix, every single one of those line items has a system that has an SOP written out behind it. So the beauty of this decision matrix is not only does it make sure everybody's aligned with who has to touch what in the company, as my daughter used to say, you know, get out of my sandbox, you know, like, why are you in there messing around? It's not your area. What it also does then is as you grow people and develop people and create what I call intrapreneurs versus entrepreneurs, you can show them how moving across the decision matrix, they're taking on more and more of a decision making role in the company, which of course, ultimately the goal was 
that Karen and myself, my business partner, could move out of having to make those decisions and let the team run the company without us. So give me a practical example of a judgment call that would be determined by this decision matrix. The classic one is, is budgets. So as far as spending. So when we started the company, I think, and I think the last the one I show in the book was our final one. I think it says $10,000. So up to $10,000, um, under $10,000 didn't need approval. Obviously, we started the company as much lower than that. It was like $500. But this gives people actual budget spending authority and entrepreneurial mindset. So what I'm just getting at is, hey, your, your payroll, total payroll budget for the year for your department is $400,000. Okay. If you are under that $400,000 and you are hitting the key metrics, which I'm sure we're going to talk about next, you have budget authority for that $400,000. I'm not going to tell you who to hire. I'm not going to tell you what to pay them. I'm not going to tell you how to pay them. Now, we had guidelines for all that and systems as far as you know what your job position would be. But I'm letting the department head take on that decision-making process inside the company in their own department. And so spending, same thing, when I use the $10,000 example. If they needed to go out and buy a couple new desktops for the department and they were under, in that case, you know, $10,000, which they would have been, they had total authority to go out and buy and purchase that equipment within the budget. They didn't need to get sign off approval by the CEO or the uh, COO of the company. So that's the decision matrix. The decision filter is related. Talk to me about the interplay between those two concepts. So this is the, the key way I believe any company can develop entrepreneurs in their business. So it's, it's company owners, employees in that order. Mm-hmm. And so the, the company concept is, is this an alignment with our mission, vision, values, and our top five priorities for the year? So if you can say yes to that when you're making a decision in your business, you're necessarily driving your company towards your end goal. Now, here's the tricky part. I meet entrepreneurs all the time. Tell me about your mission, vision, values. Oh, yeah, we got them. And then I say, well, what are they? And they look at me like a deer in the headlights because they don't know them. They're not living them. They're on a poster somewhere or a screensaver. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about mission, vision, values that are exemplified throughout your business on a daily basis. Top five. Are you creating a top five, what I call strategic focus plan for the coming year? All of your top five have owners, measurable wins, and action steps to how you're going to hit those top five over the next 12 months. So that covers the company. Owners, shareholders, stakeholders. Is this decision we're going to make increased owner wealth, shareholder wealth, and is it within our risk tolerance for the business and personally? A lot of entrepreneurs, myself included, jump off these cliffs, not really taking into account the risk that we're taking. Financially, health-wise, relationship-wise, you've got to make sure you're within your risk tolerance. And third is employees. And it's not because employees are third, but if there's no company and there's no owners, at least in my experience, there's not many employees. Mm-hmm. So no, you know, employees is this. Do we have the team talent and budget to execute on this choice we're going to make? And most importantly, are they in alignment with how we run our business? So our mission, vision, advice. Are they aligned with our corporate culture? So you're kind of 360 completing the loop uh, with your employees. Got it. So what do you typically see that you're saying company owners, employees, what do you typically see when you go into a business or what does dysfunction look like in this area? Yeah. So again, if they have their mission, vision, values have the top five. And again, I'm not exaggerating this. That's less than 5% of the companies I see. Less than 5%, which I talk about that as well. The biggest issue companies have with, with the decision filter is number three. And that's where I always got screwed up because I thought everybody was like me. And everybody would do it like me, back to the 80% rule again. 
Mm-hmm. So I threw a lot of good people under the bus and burned through a lot of cash because we had not trained the people right. They did not have the talents and mindset, which was the culture mindset, to go out and execute. We were putting the, the cart way before the horse, as, as we say. Got it. So this relates to the entirety of the, the concept of the people plan. When we think about culture in the business, this is another area where it tends to be a little fluffy. And who wouldn't like to have hardworking, motivated employees? I think that's the that's where the, the light bulb goes off. But in terms of all that investment in the infrastructure, we see companies like Google or Amazon, Silicon Valley companies that have the beer fridge and ping pong, et cetera. I mean, what is your concept of, of the cultural infrastructure that is actually value added as opposed to just either lip service or basically just moving compensation into perks? Yeah, this is where I would say my style plays the biggest role in this than the actual concept of this. So I have clients who have all that stuff. They do the the fun stuff, the ping pong table, the basketball hoops, all that. That was not our culture. So what what I'm saying here is you need to be true to your culture. Okay, so we were a very type A, you know, feed the tigers, whip the horses, shoot the dogs type of a culture. I mean, this was like really, really go get them type thing. This was a rocket ride. Okay. Not to say Google and Facebook and all those guys haven't been a rocket ride either, but our culture was not one of, okay, we know, let's go get some therapy dogs. We know you're not feeling that good today. I mean, we didn't have that. So people that like the hard driving, you know, grow a pair type culture fit really well with us. So my story there is is more unique probably than than a lot of people's from a standpoint of the way we drove the business. And that, that goes a lot to my character and just how I am as a person. I'm not saying it's the only way that that you should run a business. Obviously, it's not. There's tons of very successful companies that do it differently. But that's very more unique to my story, uh, as it were. So That's a fair caveat. At the end of the day, when you read a book, you shouldn't... uh, I've seen a lot of disasters that came from applying somebody else's playbook to your circumstance. Absolutely. The context in which it came from. Yep. And we're back to mission, vision, values again. If you sit down and create your mission, vision, values with your team, and you really know yourself you're going to stay out of that trouble. But if you just go, Hey, I read this cool thing. And you know, entrepreneur magazine, let's start having beer palm Fridays. And it doesn't fit your culture. You're, you're in for disaster. I mean, you got to be true to yourself on that. Sure. I mean, how do you think about mission, vision values in relation to the, the lifespan of the business? When you start another business, if you, let's say somebody came up with the concept and you decided you wanted to ditch the angel thing and go back into full-time into the operational role of actually running a business, what kind of assumptions do you think should be made of the longevity of the business? I've heard people say, don't start a business you wouldn't run for, for a decade, because I think that's a corollary to mission, vision, values, that just the, the thought of the permanence and what, what you're committing to building. How do you think about all that? Karen and I, when we wrote our business plan, we had in our business plan to build it for 10 years and sell it. That was actually in the business plan. And amazingly, we sold it in 10 years and three months. So we missed it by three months. Wow. Uh, most entrepreneurs I meet do not have that clear of a goal from a standpoint of the actual end date. But again, begin with the end in mind. Whatever that is, if you're not comfortable going 10 years out, what's called a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal, sure. something like that. You know, somebody early on, I'd say, look, let's look at a three-year and then maybe a five-year and then a 10-year. But my first question to anybody I meet is, what is your ultimate goal of this business? Are you going to sell it? 
do you want to acquire other companies and leave it as you know a legacy? Do you want to create an evergreen business? Kind of what we talked about before. You know, the, the brain is an amazing thing when you tell it where you want it to take you. I can't say any clearer than that. Intention, you've, you've probably had speakers on about this. The whole concept of having an intentional purpose to where you're going and where your company's going is maybe the most valuable thing you can do. Because I'll tell you right now, if, if you as the owner don't know what that is, good luck, your team knowing what it is. You know, people get very frustrated. I go work with these companies and I'm talking, you know, 80, $90 million companies with hundreds of employees. I mean, good companies. And, and I'll ask them, what's your biggest frustration with the ownership? We don't know what the vision is. We don't know where they want to go. And it's very frustrating. I mean, we as, as humans, if we just know, you know, uncertainty is very unsettling to most people. So from an employee perspective, when you say vision, put some more meat on that because as an entrepreneur, the vision could be money, right? But is revenue enough for an employee to feel like, oh, I know where we're going because it's $100 million. What aspect of vision resonates with an employee that causes it to have the intended effect in your mind? Yeah, and it's again, you're back to your culture, your company, and everyone is different. So I create, when I do this exercise with companies, I create what's called the vision milestone because what I believe is exactly what you said. Some fluffy statement is not going to be something to drive towards. So the vision milestone is something very concrete. So I'll give you an example. I work with this printing company. They were about a $3 million business. They wanted to be a $10 million business. Now, they didn't want to say $10 million by 2018 because we built this back in 2013. They knew that if they did 40,000 transactions in a year, they got to that run rate, they'd be doing a $10 million run rate. So their vision milestone was 40 by an X, 2018, which meant 40,000 transactions. So the vision, I, I say this with the clients, it must be a rallying cry for the entire company. So the sales guys might get behind the sales number, of course, but you need to pull in the ops people, the customer service people, the financial office people, everybody. So their thing was 40,000 transactions as an example. That brought everybody onto the same aligned playing field to hit their goal, the owner's goal of becoming a $10 million business. Got it. But the equivalent could be managing 5,000 doors or having Correct. X Correct. The way I met you, I mean, that was uh, Tim. That was him. Mm-hmm. 10,000 by 2025. 10,000 doors by 2025. Got it. And that's obviously something that people can relate to quite a bit more than just a, a raw economic number. Forecasting is obviously somewhat related to this. In the book, you talk about you describe yourself as a worst case scenario kind of guy when it comes to forecasting, which I thought was was interesting. I don't sense you as being a worst case scenario kind of guy in terms of optimism, et cetera. What is the utility of taking that worst case scenario perspective with forecasting? I don't know you that well, but I can tell you're a salesperson as well. Here's the deal. Salespeople, if they're one thing, they are optimistic, right? Always. If you're not optimistic, you're going to get beat down or you're going to give up. So I know that about myself. I know that when I speak to others though in my company who do not have that, to your point, that attitude or that, that you know, go get them aggressive attitude, I need to be thinking, okay, what would be the worst case scenario if we just hit plan, let's say from a forecasting standpoint. So I talk about this thing in the book called sales math, which I learned from Karen. That was Karen's term, my business partner. I'd go to Karen. I'd say, Karen, next month's going to be awesome. We're going to do 8 million. She'd look at me and say, is that the real number or is that sales math? <laughs> because she wasn't a salesperson and she knew that. that I, I'm digging that, that that term was coined by a non-salesperson. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. 
So I go to them, I talk about this in the book. So I go to the end of the year, we're doing our plan. I get my sales team together. I go, guys, what's, you know, I take everybody's individual plan. What are we going to do next year? Put it all together. All right. They, as a group, said we're going to do 30 million. I apply my sales math factor, which is 0.7 times 30 million. We go create our forecast off 21 million, which keeps us out of trouble. Got it. And we were always within 0.69 to 0.71 of the optimistic number. So it's a 70-30 rule. I could have called it that. I call it sales math. Give kudos to Karen. She came up with that term. Yeah, I like that. So this is basically just like a CFO leash on the optimism that comes from the Correct. business. Now, if, you're, if you're using the hats, it's the black hat and the hats conversation. Early in the book, you talk about going and having a meeting with your business partner where you both put a number down on the table in terms of the kind of pay cut you would be willing to accept in order to potentially transition yourselves out of the business in some sense. When you had that conversation, the way that you couch it in the book is that you weren't sure if your partner was necessarily going to be on board with that. So when you walked into that conversation, what were you expecting when when you broached the subject of trying to exit the business either financially or by having more freedom? I was going to move. We were going to move somewhere away from Michigan. I could either sell the company, Karen could buy me out, or I thought we could transition out of the business. To transition out of the business, I wasn't going to fly back to Michigan to visit with Michigan every week to keep running the business. So I needed to get comfortable with what was my nut that we needed to live on as a family on a monthly basis over the course of a year. So that worst case scenario, this thing doesn't work. I'm just making what I'm making based on the pay cut I'd have to take to do all these improvements in the company. Could I do that without also getting stuck? Now I'm getting paid less and I'm still on a plane once a week. So that was the whole thing. I knew Karen well enough, we talked long enough that I knew we could come to a number. I wasn't confident it was gonna be the same number that I had, but I was willing to negotiate that. In reality, what it was gonna be is if the number wasn't big enough to take as a pay cut, we just would have had to, you know, bring the timeline out longer to make the Got it. Slow it down. Yeah, correct. Th- correct. That makes sense, but certainly a difficult conversation. Yep. Very. You also talk in the book about the concept of having five key metrics as a part of after having that conversation, making the transition, committing to moving out, knowing that your people needed to be more empowered, but they also needed to be accountable. Metrics are attractive and it provides the sense of control, but too many metrics and there's no way of wrangling them or deriving meaning. I'd love to hear you just get up on a soapbox about the five key metrics concept and why more than that starts to spin out of control. Yeah, I was just on the phone with the with a new client out in Kansas City today, their financial uh, services company. And they're currently tracking 18 metrics. And they know it's not good. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. And so the whole conversation was around, let's get you to your five key metrics with your one critical metric, is how I would say it. So you have your one critical that really measures 80% of your business. The other four are supporting and they get you to 95% of your business. I don't believe you need more than five key metrics to measure 95% of how your business is performing. And if you as an owner, entrepreneur, have a pulse on 95% of your business, kind of back to the 80% rule again, you've got a really good hold on your business. I mean, I don't know how many entrepreneurs you talk to, but most entrepreneurs can barely tell me what their sales were last quarter, much, much less three or four key metrics, right? But when you know these and you drive these and people ask me, well, Scott, did you have open book management? Meaning, did I share numbers with all the employees? I said, no, but I had open metric management. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the company knew the metrics. 
Everybody was bonused and their performance increases were based on hitting the metrics. We were very metrics focused because just like the concept of a dashboard in a car, your car is doing a billion things every minute to run, but you only need to see what's on the dashboard, the speedometer, tachometer, fuel gauge. That's what metrics give you. You don't have to dig down deep. I mean, again, when we sold, we had 23 companies in 42 states. It was a financial, not nightmare, but it was it was a big, huge operation. Mm-hmm. But I could I could from those core key numbers gather my five key metrics and have a very intelligent conversation with any department about how they could impact that metric and or what they needed to do to get back on track to be in compliance with the metric. The reason this resonates for me is for a couple of different scenarios. I think about working with third-party vendors for small businesses that are trying to do marketing, for example, they're paying for a pay-per-click campaign or an SEO campaign. And a lot of times what comes back is like a 10-page report with a bunch of charts that have no meaning. What I know is that the more numbers there are, the less priority that you put on any of them and the less invested you are in understanding them. Would the scenario that you're describing be something along the lines of if one of those five has a red flag scenario, that is when you do the due diligence to look at the 10 other related numbers that you're not looking at day to day? Correct. Yeah. You're always going to have supporting numbers and then people go, oh, five metrics. You don't understand my business. I said, look, you're going to have other metrics by department. So like my sales department had their own metrics. They were unique to the sales department. I'm not saying it's five and that's it. You know, I'm saying there's five key metrics for the company to be aligned around. And to your point, if one's an outlier, you then look in, dig a little deeper into the other key metrics and or financial statements to see what the problem is. If, it, if it's not already apparent, once you really get strong and again, you know, it took me time to get these right. It's just like a perfect recipe. I talk about in the book to really get those metrics right. When you get them really good and tight and you see one varying up or down, you pretty much know what's going on. I mean, you have a pretty good feel. I mean, not right away. When you really start tracking these, probably over three to six quarters, you'll have a good feel of what's going on. It's like I said, like a recipe. You take a bite of that cookie, tastes a little weird, you know, it needed a little more vanilla, a little less sugar. It's the exact same thing with the metric. Yep. So for folks that want to find out more about how to implement some of these systems and put this stuff in place, obviously they can find your book online. What does a potential consulting engagement with you look like? Does your organization do ongoing consulting? How does all that work? I do business coaching and I do, you know, either one-on-one, I can do phone coaching or I do group um, strategy planning, or I have a program called the Entrepreneurial Development Program. It's a one-year program. It's quarterly for one year. Uh, spend a full day with your next in, in line, your executive team. And we build, I build entrepreneurs inside your business. It is just me. I'm not, you know, overseeing 10 other coaches or even want to go down that path. So if there's a fit between us and, and, you know, there's good rapport and your goals are, I say, lofty enough to get me excited. Those are the kind of people I work with. And, and that, I mean, I'm not saying that to be snooty. What I'm saying is it's not as big a deal to me where you are today, but the big deal is where do you want to be tomorrow? So I work with some small companies, but they want to be big. That's what I call hyper growth. That gets me excited. That gets me on a plane. That gets me want to help them achieve their goals. If you're at five mil and you want to go to 5.5 in 10 years, I'm not your guy. Mm-hmm. Or if you want to exit, if you want to exit, I do exit planning as well. If you want to exit, obviously I'm very interested in that. I've done that. I've done it multiple times in my angel deals. That gets me excited too, because 
that's where you can really go to the next stage of the book, which, you know, we don't have time for today, which is the position part of the book, which is how to position your company for a maximum return exit. Guys, if you want to get some more information about this process and everything that Scott has described, you can find the book on Amazon.com or probably in your local bookstore. But you can also check out Scott's website at growthconnect.com. Scott, before I let you go, I have one final question that I like to ask every guest. And I'm guessing that you have an opinion on this. In your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred? That's funny because you know I put that in my book. I think there's entrepreneurial genes in all of us. So I will have to say they're born. However, most people don't act on them. So there's your bread part. Uh, the genes are there. The thoughts are there. I, I'm always amazed, especially when I go in and do, I've done things at schools, high schools, junior highs, colleges. The entrepreneurial spirit is in everyone. It's just, are they going to go act on it? That's my ultimate answer to that. That's pretty optimistic and charitable of you. I like it. Scott, I appreciate you coming on the show. Guys, if you want to get in touch, reach out, check out the book. It's worth your while. Thanks again for coming on, Scott. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks, George. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.